I hope that as they go down, you'll be praying for them. Uh, I'm excited about to see, seeing kids excited about coming to church, aren't you? And uh, that's a blessing. You know, we believe that kids can come to Jesus. I was just a child when I came to Jesus. And so I'm very grateful that he said, suffer the little children to come unto me for such is the kingdom of heaven. And uh, what a blessing that is. Well, it's Valentine's season. And I thought since it was Valentine's season, it'd be good to get a Valentine's verse. And there's lots of Valentine's verses in Song of Solomon, Song of Solomon. So uh, I want to draw your attention to Song of Solomon, chapter number two. Notice, please, what the Bible says in verse number one. Song of Solomon, chapter number two and verse number one. The Bible says this, I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. Father, would you help me as I preach tonight? I want to be a blessing to those that are here. I want to say what you would have me say. Lord, take the words that I'm about to preach and drive them home to every heart. You know who is in this place lost without Jesus Christ and headed to a devil's hell and a Christless eternity. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you'd convict them. Bring deep Holy Spirit conviction. I pray that you'd draw them to yourself. Show them your deep love. Show them how they've offended the law and broken your word. And Lord, I pray that you'd show them their destiny and then show them the cross, how that you took their punishment on Calvary. Thank you for doing that, Lord Jesus. Thank you for those that have come tonight that know you. And I pray that you'd draw them closer to you. Help us to understand what is truth and what is error. And I pray that we'd embrace the truth and without question and without hesitation, reject the error. And we'll thank you for what you do because we ask this in Jesus' precious and wonderful name. Amen. Several years ago when I was in high school, young and very foolish, I was on a double date with a friend of mine and we were out and about. And on our way to the date, I'm confessing now, confession is good for the soul, on our way to the date, I said, oh, I said, I didn't get any flowers. I said, Mark, I said, Mike, Mike, stop the car right here, right here. You've got to stop the car. And it was right next to a cemetery. And um, so I, I stopped and I jumped out and I jumped over the fence and I got a, a fake rose off of one of the gravestones. I, I know that's terrible and, and I'm embarrassed now, really. To tell you, but I did. I don't know if my date ever found out or maybe she did. And that was why it was the only date. But anyway, uh, uh, she got she got a rose off of the gravestone uh, of someone else. And it was uh, a fake rose, just a fake phony, phony flower. It wasn't even real. Now, I wonder if uh, you ladies here tonight, if you had your druthers would prefer a real live, beautiful rose or a fake Rose. How many of you ladies would prefer a fake rose? Would you raise your hand? Anyone? How many of you ladies would prefer a beautiful rose? Would you raise your hand? All right. How many of you ladies would just prefer a rose of any kind? Okay. All right. All right. Well, uh, look at what the Bible says in verse number one of Song of Solomon, chapter two. It says, I am the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valleys. Now, Jesus Christ is certainly the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valleys. Song of Solomon was written as really a love story. 
Solomon was in pursuit of his love and he, he was in pursuit. And what we learn from the book of Song of Solomon is a, a right relationship between a husband and wife. What true love is all about. Some people have allegorized this book and, and left it there in interpretation and only put it as the Lord Jesus Christ's love for His bride. And certainly Jesus Christ, as the Rose of Sharon, does love His bride. But tonight, I'm not going to preach to you on the love of a husband towards his wife or a wife towards her husband. But I am going to preach to you this evening on the subject, Down with the Phony Flower and Up with the Rose of Sharon. Down with the phony flower and up with the rose of Sharon. You said, preacher, what are you talking about? Well, I'm talking about a kind of doctrine and a kind of error that has crept into churches all across this country and sadly even into some Baptist churches. And it is the error called Calvinism. It goes by the acronym or the acrostic of TULIP. Total depravity. Unconditional election. Limited atonement irresistible grace and perseverance of the saints. And tonight I want to preach to you against the error of Calvinism. The truth is, every single Christian ought to find out what true doctrine is, what true Bible doctrine is, and embrace it and reject falsehood. The Bible says, Thy word is pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. The Bible says, I hate, David cried in Psalm 119, every false Way. And I want to go on record saying tonight, so that no one misunderstands me, and no one misinterprets what I'm about to say, that I hate every false way. And Calvinism is a false way. It is not a Bible doctrine. It is not a true doctrine. It is a false way. No doubt, if, if the statistics are right, and if this is a general cut of a regular congregation across the country, there are some in this room who have been affected by, or may I say, infected by Calvinism. Maybe it's some church that you've attended in years gone by. Maybe because of some preacher that you've read after or listened to on the radio or television. But I want you to see from the Bible that Calvinism is not a doctrine that a Bible-believing Christian should accept, but out of hand and without doubt should reject because of the error that it is it, it permeates and it, it, it propagates. I want you to see just a few simple points tonight. Number one, I want us to examine the root of Calvinism. I want us to examine the root of Calvinism. Now, when I'm preaching against Calvinism tonight, I'm not just preaching against the error or the falsehood or the lie of Calvinism. I'm preaching against every error. And every error and every teaching that comes down the pike needs to be examined and examined for its merits based upon its root. Where it came from. Where it originated. How it came about. Who were the, orig- who were the originators? Who were the authors of these doctrines? Well, let's think about this matter of Calvinism. We need to examine the root of Calvinism. Did you know that it is rooted not in the teachings first of John Calvin in the 1400s, but it is rooted in the teachings of Augustine. Augustine, who was a key player in forming the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. And we reject Roman Catholicism as a doctrine. We do not accept it. The Bible rejects it. It goes contrary and counter to the Word of God. And so, here Augustine was a mentor. He was someone who was very deeply ingrained in in the teaching of John Calvin. And John Calvin was born over 500 years ago in Noyon, France on July 10th, 1509. Calvinism has its roots in the teaching of Augustine, who was born in 354 B.C. 
Did you know that in the latter, later in 1536, when John Calvin wrote and published the first of his institutes, his famous institutes, he was only 26 years old. Did you know that? And some people would say that's a wonderful thing. He was just 26 years old. He wrote all of this voluminous amount of material just as a 26 year old man. But the Bible says something about that in the book of Second Timothy. And it says, lay hands suddenly on no man, neither be partakers of other men's sins. Uh, the Bible says that, that we're not to put our hands of blessing and uh, ordination upon a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Here he is, 26 years old, and he produces these institutes that really are full of Augustine's teachings. And Augustine was not a Bible believer. He was not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he never gives a record of being born again, which is an absolute basic necessity to go to heaven. By the way, not only did Augustine not give a record of being born again, neither does John Calvin. In all of the institutes and in all of his writings, and they are voluminous, there is not one written testimony of his own personal salvation. Now, I find that astounding because that's the very thing that draws Christians together. It, we are not drawn together by a preacher. We're not drawn together by a just a creed, although we're drawn together by the Word of God. We're drawn together by our common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That common faith that was once delivered unto the saints that Jude said that we should earnestly contend for. And in all of his writings, there's not one clear testimony of his own salvation. Did you know that he had been only gone from the Catholic Church two years before he began to publish his supply of unlimited, infinite, and so-called wisdom? Only two years. Interesting. Did you know much of what came of the Protestant Reformation? And John Calvin was a part of the Protestant Reformation. There were some significant things, very significant things that happened during that time. Gutenberg's press was invented and you had the printing press that made available book copies and the printing of the Bible in the common man's language and available in mass. Before the printing press, books were very rare and very valued, and they were hand-copied. After the printing press, it just completely, it completely opened up knowledge and, and wisdom, and especially through the Word of God. The Catholic Church had for a long time kept the Bible in a cloistered closet somewhere or up high on some sacred desk where only the preacher could read it and only the preacher could understand it. It was written in Latin. It wasn't written in the common man, in the common man's language. So even today, even today, there are many parts of the world that have Catholic churches, and I'm speaking no disrespect to Catholic people. I'm talking about doctrine. There are many parts of the world where a Catholic will have a great respect for the Bible, but he won't open it. I've talked to many people, and there are some even here tonight, who were saved out of the Catholic Church, and you never had opened the Bible or even come to really read what it was, was about uh, until you'd been saved. Do you know why? Because there, is, because there was a, a, a fear of the, word of, of the Word of God, and only the priest could interpret it. That's why we have a clergy and laity kind of a mindset. Well, when the Protestant Reformation took place, it was in large part due to Gutenberg's press and the printing of the Bible. And now Martin Luther came out with a copy of, of the Bible in the common language of the German people. There were others who came out. Wycliffe's translation came out with a language, a, a common Bible language, so that now people could have their own copy of the Word of God. And the Bible and its printing flamed the Protestant Reformation. 
hey, this is very, very important. But much of what came of the Protestant Reformation was a re- reaction to the, the dead, deadness in the Roman Catholic Church. Now, I find this true with our modern day user friendly and emergent churches. Listen carefully. In the early part of the 1900s, of the late part of the 1800s, in Protestant churches, hear it, there were men who were called of God and they would go overseas to get their training. They would get their undergraduate degree here in America. Then they would go overseas to get their graduate degree. And many of the overseas seminaries were filled with German rationalism and liberal thinking. Listen, then they would come back to America and these seminary trained preachers would step into pulpits in Protestant churches. I'm speaking of Presbyterian and Methodist and Lutheran and whatnot, they would step into the pulpits and they would preach their liberal theology, which is death and deadness. And in the early 1900s, in many Protestant churches, listen carefully, Jesus Christ was shown the door. He was not welcome. The Bible was not believed. It was not accepted. Because liberalism from German rationalism had crept in. What I'm saying to you is known fact. It is not up for debate. And the truth is, ladies and gentlemen, that that many of these Protestant churches became liberal, so they kicked Jesus Christ out. Look, Jesus Christ isn't going to stay around if He's not wanted. He's not going to force Himself on you or me. Jesus Christ is a perfect gentleman, and He's not going to force Himself on us. So in many liberal churches, listen... Jesus was kicked out in the early 1900s, and that was why a group of men like R.A. Torrey and T.T. Shields and W.B. Riley and these men got together and they said, hey, this is a problem. We need to write down a group of fundamental doctrines. And they came up with a several volume set of books called The Fundamentals. In other words, we're going to believe that the Bible is true every word. And we're going to believe in the virgin birth of Christ. Some are questioning the virgin birth of Christ. And we're going to believe in the blood atonement that you can't be saved in any other way but through the blood, the death, blood, the shed blood, the burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're going to believe in the the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we're just going to believe what the Bible says. And so there was a group of fundamentalist churches that came out of the liberal churches and there was a controversy that went on. But let me say this, in these liberal churches, Jesus Christ was kicked out. So now, move forward to the 21st century, now in some of these liberal churches and mainline Protestant denominations, now they're questioning whether or not homosexuality is okay, when it is clearly and expressly forbidden in the Bible. Now they're questioning whether or not these things are acceptable. How could that even be a question up for debate in a Bible preaching church? How? It is clearly forbidden in the Word of God. How could that even be up for debate? Well, I'll tell you how. Jesus Christ was kicked out over a hundred years ago in many of these churches. And so let me just say, in these Protestant churches, uh, in these Protestant dead churches, now you have a contemporary movement where people are longing for and looking for life and so they've left the mainline Protestant churches and they start a contemporary church and they start an emergent church or something along those lines, just looking for some kind of life. Because Jesus Christ was kicked out a long time ago and the only thing that makes those places look like a church is a soup kitchen or a bargain basement. And if they didn't have that, they wouldn't have anything that looked like a church. Now, listen carefully. I am for any departure from error as long as it leads to the Bible. And I'm for any departure from error, whether it was during the Reformation time 
or whether it is in our modern times, as long as it leads to the truth of God's word. If it doesn't lead to the truth of God's word, I'm not really interested in being a part of it. Did you know that Martin Luther, though he came out of the Catholic Church and nailed his 95 thesis to the door at Wittenberg, Germany? Did you know, though he did that and discovered a truth called salvation by grace through faith? He thought, Martin Luther thought, that when he came out of the Catholic Church, that the Jews would in mass follow him. And they didn't. So you know what Martin Luther decided? He decided that the Jews should be piled up and locked in their synagogues and burned. That's a known fact. It's written on the walls of the Holocaust Museum just a mile, just a few miles from here. What? Why would he make such a statement? And I believe that his doctrine and idea along those lines was a foundation for the Holocaust. No, we're not for that, are we? No, we're not for that. And I want to say this, that Martin Luther, along with John Knox, as well as John Calvin, still believed in baptizing babies. That's not a Bible doctrine. Let me say this. Not only did they believe in baptizing babies, but they persecuted people like you and me who believed in baptism by immersion after salvation. John Calvin did. That's a known fact. Martin Luther, in fact, some of them murdered those who did not agree with them and see it their way. Now, this is very important to understand because we're examining the root. This is the root of Calvinism. John Calvin and some of his reformers would take men who were Baptists, just like you and me, and they would put them on a long pole, tie them to one end, put that pole down over a Uh, the edge of a river or down into a lake and they'd say, you believe in dunking and immersion? How does this feel? And they'd put them down under until they could barely breathe and pull them back up again. And then once they'd caught their breath, they'd put them down under until they could barely breathe and bring them back up again. And sometimes they did it until the people died and expired. Men calling themselves Christians persecuting other Christians. Do you know where they learned that? Listen carefully. They learned that from the Inquisition from the mother church. I want to say these are the roots of Calvinism. Now let's examine the doctrine itself. If you're taking notes tonight, which I would strongly recommend that you do, you can write down a T in the margin of your notes and understand that T stands for total depravity. Total depravity. What does T stand for? Say it with me. Total depravity. T stands for total depravity. And that's what the Calvinists will tell you it stands for. But that's really the front porch doctrine. When you get inside the house, you realize they don't believe in total depravity. They believe in total inability. That means no man, woman, boy or girl is able in and of himself to come to Christ. This is what men say. The canons of Dort, strong Calvinist doctrine, uh, was purported and, and nailed down. The canons of Dort read this. Therefore, all men without the regenerating grace of the Holy Spirit are neither unable nor willing to return to God, nor to dispose themselves of reformation. Martin Luther said this point, this point was the hinge on which the whole reformation turned. R.C. Sproul, a modern Calvinist, said this, Regeneration 
precedes faith. Because if you can't in and of yourself come to God, you must be regenerated according to the Calvinist so that you can come to God. That's what a Calvinist says. This is what God says. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but should have everlasting life. Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says in John 5.24 Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth My word and believeth on Him that sent Me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation but is passed from death unto life. Here's what the Bible says, John 5 and verse 40. It says, ye will not come to me that ye might have life. Jesus Christ said that. Now listen, if Jesus is rebuking them for not coming to him, but he's created man so that he's unable to come to him, there's a problem. Something is wrong with God and something is not wrong with God. The Bible says this in John chapter 20, verse 31. These are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through His name. John 16 and verse 9. The Bible says the Holy Spirit reproves the world of sin because they believe not on Me. Now, why would the Holy Spirit reprove the world because they believe not if they have no power in and of themselves to believe? Let me say this. The Calvinist wants to tell you that if you're, you're dead in sins, you're too dead to believe. Let me say, if you're too dead to believe, you're too dead not to believe. And so the logic is skewed and it is flawed. And and this is the ironic thing about Calvinism is that many times Calvinists that are are, people are attracted to Calvinism who uh, estimate themselves as very intellectual. But the fact of the matter is, is that Calvinism is anti-intellectual and anti-logical. Hey, T, total depravity or total inability. They say that you cannot come to God because you are completely unable to come to God. Well, then why would Jesus Christ say, come unto me, all the ends of the earth. And be ye saved. Why would he say that? Look unto me all of the ends of the earth and be ye saved. Why would he say this? Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Why would he make this invitation? Whosoever will may come. Why would he say that? If you're unable to come, why would he say come? Hey, if you can't come. The fact is that total depravity or total inability is not a Bible doctrine. It's a man-made doctrine. You, unconditional election. If you're writing notes, you put a you and then put unconditional election, which basically says this. God has chosen out of all the populace of the world, some to go to heaven and others to go to hell. Now, you'll find different groups of Calvinists. Some say, we don't believe that God has chosen some to go to heaven and others to go to hell. We only believe that God has chosen some to go to heaven. Now, I'm not the sharpest crayon in the box. I can tell you this, that doesn't make sense. You see, if I've got five apples on this pulpit right now, and I'm looking over the apples to see which one I want to choose to eat, and I choose one... I am by default not choosing four. And that's exactly the way the doctrine of Calvinism and unconditional election propounds it. What men say, this is what men say. John Calvin said, God, by his eternal and immutable counsel, he likes to banty about those terms, determined once for all those whom it was his pleasure on a day to admit to salvation and those whom, on the other hand, it was his pleasure to doom to destruction. Does that sound like the God you know from the Bible? It doesn't sound like the God I know from the Bible. 
Calvin said this again. He is pleased. God is pleased to exclude them from the inheritance which he predestines to his children. In other words, he has come to save some, but he is glad to exclude others. That doesn't sound like the God I read about. This is what Calvin said again. He describes God whose, quote, pleasure it is to inflict punishment on fools and transgressors. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I will say this to you. Some people have been in churches who have been chock full of Calvinism and their questions have not been answered and their, their thinking has been frustrated. And when they study the Bible, they see verses that contradict Calvinism. And so you know what they end up doing? They leave these Calvinistic churches and they become atheists. And quite frankly, I do not blame them. Because if the God of the Bible is the God of John Calvin, there, he is a sadistic, maniacal, hateful God that goes, eeny, meeny, miny, moe, you can go to heaven, but the rest of you can go to hell. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God that I preach. That's not the God that came to die for all mankind. That's not the God that is found in the pages of Scripture. That is a God foreign to Scripture. And it is a doctrine that I am absolutely opposed to and will be with God's help until the day that I die. When the Bible speaks of election, and it does, it is speaking of a few things. First, it is speaking of Jesus Christ, who is the elect one. That is, the one God chose to be the Savior of the world. When it is speaking of election in Romans chapter 9 and Romans chapter 10, these are proof texts for Calvinism. In Romans chapter 9 and 10, it is not saying that God has chosen some to go to heaven and some to go to hell. And anybody that argues against it needs to sit down and be quiet because you can't argue against the thing. Uh, you can't argue against the maker. Why should the thing made say to him that made it, why hast thou made me thus? It is not speaking about God choosing some to go to heaven and others to go to hell. It is speaking about God who has chosen chosen the Jews versus the Gentiles. God had every right and reason and ability to choose the Jews as His own. And He has. He has chosen the Jews as His chosen people. He has. And the Bible speaks about, in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, how He loved Jacob and He hated Esau. What does that mean? Does that mean He loved Jacob and despised Esau? He wanted Jacob to go to heaven and He didn't want Esau to go to heaven? No. Terms of emotion in the Bible are terms of comparison. And God was saying, I chose Jacob as my chosen one. It would be through him that my seed would come. It would be through him that the promised one would come, not through Esau. And in fact, He judged Esau not because He just randomly chose to hate him, but because Esau turned his back on God and turned his back towards and turns his face towards idols. I want to say, ladies and gentlemen, don't let a Calvinist twist you up with all kinds of quote unquote intellectual uh, mumbo jumbo. Hey, let me say what God says. This is what God says in contrast to what Calvin says. Ezekiel eighteen thirty two. God says, I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live ye. Again, Ezekiel 33 and verse 11. As I live, saith the Lord, God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways. For why will ye die, O house of Israel? Isaiah 55 and verse 1. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye, buy, and eat ye, come buy wine and milk without money, and with price, out without price. John 3 and verse 17. God sent not his 
His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Acts 10 and verse 34. God is no respecter of persons. According to James 3 and verse 17, God's wisdom is without partiality. And Revelation chapter 22 and verse 17, the Bible says, Whosoever will, let him come and take of the water of life. Freely. I want to say that the God of the Bible and the God of the ages and the God of eternity is not the God of John Calvin. The God of John Calvin randomly chooses whoever he wants to to go to heaven. Let me say this. Election not only has to do with Jesus Christ being the elect, the elect one. It not only has to do with the Jews being the, the elect nation and people as opposed to the Gentiles. But when you're saved, you are grafted in Romans chapter 11 to that spiritual heritage. And though we may not be children of Abraham by blood, we're children of Abraham by faith. I want to say that this matter of election needs to be understood from its context and from a biblical perspective. L, if you're writing notes, you put down an L. And next to L, you would write down limited atonement. A Calvinist would say that he believes in limited atonement. You say, preacher, what does that mean? Well, in essence, limited atonement means Christ did not die for all, just for the elect. And to me, of all the Calvinist doctrines, it is one of the most abominable. Now, Charles Spurgeon, who claimed to be somewhat of a Calvinist, he was a very poor Calvinist, he claimed to be somewhat of a Calvinist, he categorically rejected limited atonement. He did not support it. This is what men say. John Calvin said, quote, all are not created on equal terms. That doesn't even sound American since it's President's Day. I remember a president years ago who said all men are created equal. Well, that contrasts what John Calvin said. John Calvin said all are not created on equal terms, but some are preordained to eternal life and others to damnation. I want to say this. If you're a Calvinist, why witness? If you're a Calvinist, why preach? If you're a Calvinist, why read your Bible? Why pray? God's already pre-programmed everyone in and everything into everyone's mind. And you're just a robot. This is what Grover Gunn, a famous Calvinist, said. The doctrine of limited atonement is simply that the cross of Christ provides a sure and secure and real salvation for everyone God intended it to save and for them alone. This is what Thomas, a famous Calvinist, said. Christ's redeeming work was intended to save the elect only and actually secured salvation for them. This is what God says. Luke 2 and verse number 10. The angels cried, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. Here's what the Bible says. John 4 and verse number 42. This is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Acts 10 and verse 43. To give to him give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. First Timothy two and verse number four, who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Let me say, hear me, if you're here tonight and you're not saved and you've never been born again. It is God's will that you be born again. He does not want you to die and go to hell. He does want you to be forgiven. And the only way to be forgiven is through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible teaches. Here's what the Bible says. It says in Titus 2 and verse 11, The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching them that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. What does he say? He says this grace has appeared to all men. That means according to Romans chapter 1, they are without excuse. 
There's no one that can say, God, you're unfair. You're unjust. You didn't give me an opportunity. You didn't open the door of salvation to me. There's no one that can say that because God has revealed Himself through creation and through conscience and through the commandments and through Christ. He's revealed Himself. Listen to what the Bible says in John chapter 1 and verse number 9. Jesus Christ was that true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. That doesn't sound like Calvinist doctrine. It sounds like we can throw limited atonement right out the window. You know what I say? I'll tell you what I say. I say down with this phony flower and up with the rose of Sharon. I say down with this fake imitation and up with the real deal, the Lord Jesus Christ. I, if you're taking notes, is irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. And this is in essence what irresistible grace says. God forces you against your will to come to Him. That's not what the Bible teaches. Listen to what men say. The famous Augustine said, quote, Faith becomes something which God irresistibly bestowed upon the elect without their having believed anything or having made any decision or even having been aware that they were being regenerated. What? That just means we're robots. He's programmed it all in and we can't do anything against it. We can't do anything about it. So we might as well live however we want to live because we can't come to God unless He's programmed it uh, into us. I I tell you, I was there when it happened when I was saved and I guess I ought to know. (laughs) I was there when I trusted Jesus Christ and I was there when the burden of sin lifted and I was there when I came to the cross and believed that Jesus Christ was not a way but the only way that it wasn't through Jesus and the Pope or Jesus and the Baptist preacher or Jesus and the Baptist church that it was through Jesus Christ alone. I was there when it happened and I remember when the sin burden rolled away. I was there when it happened and I guess I ought to know. Hey, this is what John Piper, a very popular Calvinist, says. He says, God is sovereign and can overcome. By the way, we believe God is sovereign, but we don't believe it in the way the Calvinist believes it. The Calvinist believes when they say God is sovereign, that he can do whatever he wants, even create and will sin and even select some to go to heaven and not give a chance to others to go to heaven. They're just damned forever. They have to go to hell. We don't believe that kind of sovereignty. This is what John Piper says. God is sovereign and can overcome all resistance when He wills. Irresistible grace refers to the sovereign work of God to overcome the rebellion of our hearts and bring us to faith in Christ so that we can be saved. And you know what is so insidious about this? Is that in some of Calvinism, there is the truth. And that's the way the devil works. He packs a lie inside of the truth. And that's why you look at some of what they say and you say, well, well, that that sounds somewhat like what the Bible says. But then you listen to others and you say, well, that's not what the Bible says. And you don't know. And at the very least, the devil causes confusion. This is what the Bible says. God doesn't force himself on anyone. Matthew 11 and verse 28. He says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Sounds like he's giving us a choice. That's what the Bible says in John 7 and verse 37. In that last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus Christ lifted up His voice and cried and said, If any man thirst, let him come unto Me and drink. What about when Pharaoh rejected Jesus Christ in Exodus chapter 5 through 12? By the way, the Calvinist will say that God made Pharaoh simply so that He could destroy Pharaoh. And that's not what the Bible teaches. Pharaoh had a will just like every other human being. But watch this. Pharaoh hardened his heart against God and said, No, 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 no to God! Until God finally said, Pharaoh, you've crossed a line from which there is no return. And now 
you're not the one going to be saying no. I'm going to be the one saying no. Look, there could be a sinner in this room tonight who is lost and headed to hell and you've heard from a preacher or from a friend or from a co-worker or from a neighbor that you're lost and your destiny is eternity in hell and you've hardened your heart and hardened your heart and hardened your heart and hardened your heart. You better beware because one of God's deadlines is the unpardonable sin and that's saying no to God one time too many. And you could cross that line tonight by saying no. I'm not going to listen to that little blonde-headed midget from North Carolina. I don't care if he first quotes 15 verses. I'm not listening to him. And you harden your heart against the Word of Almighty God. I want to say this, ladies and gentlemen. This could be your very last night on this earth. You better turn, turn from your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, this is what God says. What about Herod in Matthew chapter 2? Did he reject God and reject His will? Yes. What about Judas in Matthew 26? He spent three and a half years of his life with the Son of God. And he rejected him. What about Agrippa in Acts chapter 26? And what about Felix in Acts 24? Agrippa Agrippa said, Almost thou persuadest me to become a Christian. Almost. If you're here tonight and you're saying almost, I pray like Paul that you'll not only almost, but that you'll be altogether persuaded that Jesus is the only way and that you'll take Him as your Savior. God's grace can be resisted. Do you know why? Because men have been given a free will by God. By God. P, if you're taking notes, stands for perseverance of the saints. Now, if you talk to many Christians, they will tell you, well, I'm not, I may not be a Calvinist, but I believe the first point, total depravity, because it's sold and it's billed as somewhat of that we're all sinners. Well, we all believe that we're all sinners if we're born again. We all believe the Bible teaches that we're sinners. But, but then they say, uh, they say that it, you're totally unable. So it's not actually that we're all sinners, it's somewhat that we're totally unable. P stands for perseverance of the saints, and many people are told that, that, hey, we believe in perseverance of the saints, because because we believe that once you're saved, you're always saved. But, but we don't believe what perseverance is taught by the Calvinists. Perseverance is not actually perseverance of the saints. Perseverance is performance. And if you don't perform, you can't be saved. This is what man say. John Piper said this. No Christian can be sure he is a true believer. Hence, there is an ongoing need to be dedicated to the Lord and deny ourselves so that we might make it. Now, I say this with all due respect to John Piper. I hope and pray that he makes it. But if he believes that, it doesn't sound like he's headed to heaven. Ladies and gentlemen, we don't do what is right so that we can be sure we're saved. We're sure we're saved because of what the Bible says. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. This is what Charles Hodge says. Charles Hodge says, The only evidence of our election and perseverance is a patient continuance in well-doing. You say, Preacher, what about those verses over there in Revelation where it says, They that persevere to the end will be saved. Well, first of all, he's, he's talking to tribulation saints 
And tribulation saints, he's speaking about persevering to the end. And, and second of all, when the Bible uses the word saved, it is not always referring to spiritual salvation. Sometimes it is referring to physical salvation. It's the same is true in the book of James, chapter 2. So I want to say emphatically that you can't rip a verse out of context and then pit it against multiplied numbers of verses in the Bible. This is what God says, John 10, 28-30. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. This is what the Bible says. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 5. We are kept by the power of God. That's what the Bible says. This is what the Bible says. It, it presents to us a man named Lot. And if you look at Lot's life, you'd never think he was saved. But when you read First and Second Peter, you know that he's saved because the Bible says he was a just and a righteous man who vexed his righteous soul from day unto day with their unlawful deeds and searing and hearing. He lived in Sodom and Gomorrah. He saw the homosexuality and the wickedness of the people around him. And Lot was vexed within. He didn't say anything or much else outside, but he was vexed within. And Lot was a born-again man, a saved man. There's nothing about perseverance of the saints in Lot's life. And I want to say this, ladies and gentlemen, every one of the letters, T, total depravity, U, unconditional election, L, limited atonement, I, irresistible grace, P, perseverance of the saints, should be out of hand rejected because it is against the Word of God. Number one, we need to examine the root. Number two, we ought to taste the fruit. Taste the fruit. Take your Bible and turn with me to Matthew chapter 7 quickly, will you? Matthew chapter 7 in the Word of God. I want you to see what the Bible says in Matthew chapter 7. Now, this context is speaking directly of false prophets and those who follow them and believe them. Matthew 7 and verse number 15. It says, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Now, in case you're wondering, I believe John Calvin was a false prophet. I don't believe he was a born again man. I don't believe he's leading people to heaven. I believe by his doctrine, he's pointing people towards hell and pointing people towards a fatalism that says God's figured it all out, what he's going to do up in heaven. And there's no free will of man. And there's no way that we can influence God by prayer or partner with God as God welcomes us to. And so we might as well just live the way we want to live and listen to our rock music and drink our beer and commit fornication and act like the devil. It doesn't really matter. That's what basically is the end thinking of John Calvin, because John Calvin's God invented it all anyway. He is a false prophet. Verse 16. He says, "Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. He's speaking about false prophets and those that believe their lies. He said, wherefore, by their fruits, ye shall know them. By their fruit. So, number one, we need to examine the root. Number two, we need to taste the fruit of Calvinism. I want you to think about the, and taste the fruit of its effect on doctrine. Several years ago, I was at a winter retreat in, in Wisconsin, and I was going up a ski lift with a youth pastor uh, from a particular town in Wisconsin, and we were talking about this issue of Calvinism, and he said this to me, Brother Mike. He said, well, really, honestly, other than salvation and the doctrine of salvation, I don't really know what doctrines... Calvinism affects. Now, look, I'm not Johnny on the spot, and it's probably good that I'm not. And so I thought about that from the bottom of the mountain all the way to the top of the mountain. But just before I got off, I said this. To be honest with you, I'm not sure what doctrine I can think of that it does not affect. 
Calvinism affects the doctrine of the church. It affects the doctrine of salvation. It affects the doctrine of what you believe in the Word of God. It affects what you believe about prayer. It affects this matter of soul winning. It affects the doctrine of missions. I can't think of a doctrine. It affects the doctrine of eschatology, end time events. It, it affects, oh, it affects so much. I can't. Usually, a Calvinist will be one step away from a covenant theologian which takes the Israel and replaces Israel with the church, which the Bible doesn't do. The Bible doesn't do. But a covenant theologian and a Calvinist and a Reformed theologian is very interested in doing that. Hey, it, it affects doctrine. Taste, it, it's a, taste its effect tonight, ladies and gentlemen, on basic Christianity. On just basic Christianity. It affects the Word of God by resting and twisting the Scriptures to make it fit in its own doctrinal template. It affects prayer. Why pray? I mean, why pray if God's already figured out what He's going to do and we have no influence on Him and He's not invited us to do that? Why, well, what's the use of praying? Hey, why go soul winning? Now, the Calvinists, some Calvinists will tell you, you ought to go soul winning because God commands it and that's the only reason I would beg to differ. There's a lot of reasons why you ought to go soul winning. The love of Christ is a good motivation. The judgment seat of Christ is a good motivation. God commands it is a good motivation. Love for souls is a good motivation. There are a myriad of reasons why, biblically, we ought to go soul winning. But, but the Calvinists would say, why, why go soul winning? Think about its effect on missions. You know that in South Africa, the Dutch Reformed Church that is full of Calvinism and Reformed theology had missionaries in South Africa, listen carefully, that for 200 years would not mission reach out to the black people because they just determined that the black people were on their way to hell. That they were not part of the elect. What an abominable doctrine. What a foul out of the pit of hell kind of idea and error. Not to witness to someone because of the color of their skin or because of their ethnic background. So the Moravians up in Europe heard about it and it, in two or three months, Brother Parsons, they had missionaries fully supported and ready to go to South Africa. And they went. And for the first time in 200 years, the gospel was given to those dear black people in South Africa. I want to tell you, it has an effect on missions. Why don't you taste its effect on doctrine? Taste its effect on basic Christianity. Let's taste its effect on the ministry. I have names right now in my notes of men that I have known over the years. Some that I went to Bible college with. Some that I have been in the ministry with. And they have walked away from the truth of God's Word and embraced Calvinism. Some of them are out of the ministry. Some of them are, some of them are, are ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. I think of one man, I'll name him John, his name wasn't John, but I'm, I'm thinking of one man right now. When, when he came to Bible college, he was sold out, son of a preacher. He was gonna take the world by, 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 by the gospel and he was going to storm hell with a water gun if he needed to. But by the end of his, the influence of Calvinism in his life, he, he's not been on the mission field. He's just going from one higher degree, higher education and space, space, place of learning to another just to get another degree. And he's not going anywhere. He could have won dozens and hundreds and maybe even thousands of souls over the last 15 years, but he hasn't. I think about seminaries 
Some that I've known personally. I grew up going to Fourth Baptist Church in Minneapolis and there's a seminary there named Central Seminary and it used to be a fundamental Baptist Bible-believing seminary that was training preachers and now partly because of its embrace of Calvinism it has gone away from God. Taste its insult to one's intelligence. Now please, ladies and gentlemen, don't let a Calvinist get you off into some corner and corner you with the question. I had a Calvinist say to me one time, yeah, those of you that aren't Calvinists are going to have to answer this question. And if you can't answer this question the way we want you to answer it, if you can't answer this question, then, then, then you can't understand anything about the Bible. Why did you believe? Now, it's easy for me because I'm not very intellectual and very academic to be intimidated by someone who is. And so I thought about that. Ooh. Why did you believe? Now, you know what will hair lip a Calvinist? Here's why I believe. Because God gave me a free choice. <laughs> it's just that simple. Or some Calvinists would say, alright, here's five people in a family, five kids, three of them get saved and two of them don't. Why? Like, God wanted to save three, but He didn't want to save the other two, so that's why God saved three, but He didn't save two. What baloney? What foolishness? Here's why God saved three, so that they could give the Gospel to the other two and get them saved. That's why. I mean, really, a lot of their fancy pants questions and their intellectual arguments have simple answers, ladies and gentlemen. And the Bible, listen to me, the Bible was not written so that a man in seminary alone would understand it. It was written so that the youngest child in this room could understand it and obey it. Taste its influence against the local church. It's killed local churches all across this land and around the world. And usually a Calvinist doesn't have enough character and backbone to go start a church and go through the rigmarole and the, the discipline and the obstacles and trials of starting a church. No, he comes and sits in a pew long enough until he can build some kind of influence and following and then throw the pastor out and take over that church and grow it from a hundred down to five. Taste its attack on freedom. I believe to be a Calvinist is really to be anti-American. It's not, they're not for freedom. Did you know John Calvin had a little commune that he lived in? And if you didn't see it and say it his way, he would, he would come after you. And he even killed a man more than once. Taste his stance on, against Baptists and against Baptist distinctives and Bible doctrine. Taste its affront to the very character of God, His holiness, His mercy, His love, His long-suffering and His justice. Taste its stronghold on the souls of men. I was in a pastor's home in Minnesota and the pastor's wife, pastor and his wife were Calvinists and they said this. His, the pastor's wife said this. She said, well, you know, that was the thing we were thinking about with Calvinism. You know, we were a little concerned because we thought maybe our children would not be part of the elect. I wanted to vomit. Are you kidding me? What an abominable doctrine that would say one of my children is going to go to heaven, but the other one just can't because God didn't choose him. What an abominable aberration of Scripture. Taste its stronghold on the souls of men. I was, I was uh, talking to a man on a plane one day. He was from Holland and he had, in all practical purposes, become an atheist. You know why? He had grown up in Reformed churches and their view of God had turned him away from God forever. I was in a... Christian school in Denver, Colorado, and there were some Christian, there were some students from a Reformed church locally, and they said this, hey, because we're, our parents are Dutch Reformed, hey, because our parents are part of the elect, we're part of the elect, so we don't need to be born again. Wow! What an abomination against God. Number one, 
Examine the root. Number two, taste the fruit. And when you're done, spit it out. Number three, here's my, this is to honor all my intellectual friends. Give it the boot! That's what I say. That's point number three. You say, preacher, what do you mean? Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and we're through. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And again, I'm not just saying this about Calvinism, but I'm saying this about every false doctrine. Examine the root, taste the fruit, then spit it out and then give it the boot. It's not right. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. This is what the Bible says. Would to God you could bear with me a little in my folly and indeed bear with me, for I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy. For I have espoused you unto one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Watch verse number three. This is so vital. It's vital for every person in this room, young and old, to understand. But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Jesus gives us a simple way of salvation. He gives us a simple way to victory. He gives us a simple way to power. He doesn't give us all this maze that we have to weave through and kind of justify and logically figure all the details out. If we come to Him by faith, it's simple. It's simple. Every person here can understand it. The simplicity of Christ. Colossians 3, the Bible says in verse number 8, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy or vain deceit after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of this world, and not after Christ. You said, Preacher, what are you saying tonight? I'm saying and calling every person in this room to decide forever against Calvin and his teachings called Calvinism. I'm encouraging and challenging every person in this room, young and old, man or woman, to decide against the false teachings and false prophets, men and man-centered teachings, and go to the Bible. Now, a Calvinist will tell you and propose to you that his doctrine is very God-centered. Nothing could be further from the truth. First of all, the God of Calvinism is not the God of the Bible. And secondly, if you say something against the Calvinist mother, he won't make a big deal about it. But dare say something against John Calvin and he'll be up in arms ready to fight you. That sounds like a cult. That's not right. That's something that should be out and out rejected. And it is very man-centered. And John Calvin is the man who is at the center You said, preacher, what are you saying? I'm saying reject Calvinism and his teachings. I'm saying embrace the rose of Sharon. Do you know what it's time for? It's time for Christians all across this country to fall in love with Jesus all over again. That's what it's time for. It's time for Christians to be loath to follow a man, but be ready to follow Jesus Christ. It's time for Christians to get in the Word of God. I'm saying to you, search the Scriptures. No man ever became a Calvinist. No woman ever became a Calvinist by reading this book. They became a Calvinist by, oh, let me tell you a good book that I just read. Oh, let me tell you about R.C. Sproul or John Piper or John Calvin or, or, or uh, Mr. Pink or any one of these Calvinists. Hey, that's how you become a Calvinist, by something other than the Bible. Search the Scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. Let me challenge you to listen and read with discernment. And eat the fish and throw away the bone. Hey, sometimes you shouldn't even drink from a pool. You shouldn't even listen to a radio preacher. You shouldn't even read that book. But if you do, eat the fish and throw away the bone. And it's only fish if it's Bible. If it's not Bible, it's bone. Spit it out. You're going to choke on it. Now I'm saying to you, preach Jesus. Preach Jesus in your family. Preach Jesus in your home. Preach Jesus to everybody that you know. Preach Jesus. And I'm saying to you, let's go win the world to Christ. We don't have time to get it wrong. And we don't have time to be sitting in some inane coffee shop somewhere arguing over these questions that only lead to further dis- 
further di- disturbance and trouble. I, I tell you, my heart weeps for the souls of men who over the last 500 years or more have been kept in darkness and blinded by this phony flower who could have been brought to Jesus Christ. I want to say, a phony flower is man-made. It fades over time. It has no life. It cannot reproduce. It is deceptive to the eye. And Calvinism is just that. It appeals to the academic, though it is entirely non-academic. And it appeals to men's pride and ego. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Let me say emphatically, the rose of Sharon will never fade. It gives the sweet fragrance of Almighty God and His love and mercy and long-suffering and impartiality and grace. It is obviously real. It has given life to billions of souls. It has no deception in it. And it is the lovely Lord Jesus Christ. And I say tonight, down with the phony flower and up with the rose of Sharon. Would you bow with me in prayer? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Father, I thank You for the privilege that You've given us tonight to be around Your Word. Lord, I preach the burden of my heart. I pray that those in this room would be helped by it. I wonder with your heads bowed or your eyes closed, I wonder if you'd say this, Preacher, I know that I'm saved. But I've either given way to this false doctrine or some other false doctrine that the devil's tried to put on me. I've given way and I've yielded to this false doctrine or some other one. And tonight I realize how dangerous dangerous it is to follow the teachings of men. And tonight I'm going to reject either this false doctrine or some other false idea that's leading me down a wrong road. If God's spoken to your heart about that and you'd be willing to get right, would you just raise your hand let me pray for you and pray with you? Thank you. Good. Praise the Lord. Who else? Just slip up your hand. Hi, preacher. Pray for me. God has shown... Thank you. Some, something in my life that's not right. Maybe it's not just a false doctrine. Maybe it's a false way. Maybe it's a false path. Maybe it's some other lie. Has God spoken to you? So, preacher, God's spoken to my heart and I'm going to get right with God about it. Anybody else? Just slip up your hand. Thank you. Put your hand up. Good. Praise the Lord. Question number two. I want to ask how many of you would say, Brother Smith, I'm not perfect, but I can say without hesitation, I know that I'm saved. If I died tonight or if I died 30 years from now, I know that I'm born again. I'm on my way to heaven. If you know that, would you just slip your hand up right now as a testimony to that fact? Preacher, there's no doubt in my mind. I know that I'm saved and know that I'm on my way to heaven. Thank you, man. Put your hands down. Now I wonder if you're here and you're one of those that would say, Brother Smith, I don't know. I'm not sure if I died right now that I'd go to heaven. That my sins are forgiven. That my home is heaven. Would you pray for me? I couldn't raise my hand honestly just now. Would you pray for me? If that's you, would you just slip your hand up high? Right now, I'll see it in a moment. I'll remember you in prayer. Is there anybody in this building like that? So, preacher, I couldn't raise my hand a moment ago. I don't know that I'm saved, but I want to know. Just pray for me. Anybody at all? I've not been born again, but I'd like to be. Anyone at all? All right. Is there someone else? Preacher, pray for me. I don't know that I'm saved, but I'd like to know. Just slip up your hand and put it right back down. All right. If you're here tonight and you don't know that you're saved, you can be saved tonight if you'll come to Jesus. It's just as simple as that. He said, him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Doesn't take a lot of fancy hoops to jump through. Doesn't take a doctor's degree from some theological seminary. It just takes simple faith. And if you'll simply believe on Jesus Christ, he'll save your soul. Let's stand with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for your word. I pray, dear Lord Jesus, that you'd help us. Help us to be people who love the doctrines of the word of God and reject everything that doesn't line up with him. I pray, Lord, that tonight Christians would determine in this place that they're going to hate every false way. 
And they're going to love that which is true and real. That they're going to cast down this phony flower and everything else that's phony. And they're going to embrace the precious Lord Jesus Christ, the Rose of Sharon. And I pray, Lord, for those that may be lost in this building tonight, never having been born again. Lord, help them to know that if they'll come to Jesus as a repentant sinner and believe on Him and trust in Him, believing that He died and was buried and rose again, He'll save them. I pray that they'd leave tonight knowing that. And Lord, that they would leave trusting Jesus as their Savior. We'll thank You for what You do. Now, Father, in a moment, we're going to sing a few verses of Just As I Am without one plea. And as we sing it, I pray, Lord, that we would respond rightly. And we'll thank You and praise You in Jesus' name. Heads are bowed. Eyes are closed. God's spoken to your heart. As the pianist begins to play in just a moment, we begin to sing Just As I Am without one plea. If God's spoken to your heart, I want to urge you to come. If God's spoken to you about your need to get right with God. I want to urge you to come. If you need to be saved, I want to urge you to come. As she gives us a chord, we're going to sing God speaking to you. You come right now.